0: Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 read this way. Listen to the word of the Lord. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Him, Him we proclaim, Him. Our message is a person. Our message is not a doctrine. Our message is not a morality code. Our message is not a lifestyle. Our message is not churchianity. Our message is not religion. Our message is not do do better, try harder. Our message is not, hey, stop living that way and live a different way. Our message is a person. Our message is news about a person, what the person has done, who the person is, and who he is now for you. And our message is to invite people to receive a person into their lives. And the good news is all that the person is and does and has done and will do in and through you, to you, with you, not what you do for him. A completely different message than every other religion of the world has ever practiced. A completely different message than the idols that you and I try to run after with our lives, thinking they're going to help us. A different message than even many Christians think about, process, feed themselves every day. Because Christians turn to all sorts of good biblical things to be idols to save ourselves what we do for God, what church will do for us, what we do for church, what we will do with the Bible, what the Bible will do for us. But Paul says, him we proclaim. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our, is our mandate. Jesus is our gospel. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our comfort. Jesus is our peace. Amen. Jesus is our life. And we see Jesus everywhere. So the first thing is that (laughs) this is gospel-centered ministry, not exhortation-centered ministry. Exhortation-centered ministry means that every single time you open your mouth, it's to tell people how to live better or what to do harder. It's try harder, do better Christianity. We have exhortations, don't we? You'll notice that the letters of Paul start with the gospel and end with how to live. And when he tells us how to live, he doesn't just tell us how to live. There's a logic to what he tells us to do. And the logic is organically connected to what God has done and who God is and who we have now become in him. There's gospel logic. In other words, Paul never just says, do it. I said so. I'm in authority. He explains why based on God's gospel. He doesn't just say, hey, husbands, don't be jerks. Love your wives. Why? Because I said so. He says, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. He doesn't say, hey, yeah, there's a Bible designed for marriage. Go do it because I said so. He says, there's a Bible designed for marriage and it's the gospel. And the gospel's beautiful and compelling and it's about Christ in you and Christ through you. And wives, submit to your husbands as, because I said so. No, as the church submits to Christ. Everything is intimately connected to the working out of gospel. There's a gospel logic. Even if you look at the teachings of Jesus, years ago I was working through all this trying to figure it out. How does it work And there's even a gospel logic to the ethics of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So yes, we do have exhortations, but even the exhortations are intimately connected to the working out of the gospel. That has lots of implications for lots of things, doesn't it? So if our message to other people is, do better because I said so, then that's a little different than how the New Testament authors think, isn't it? Do this beautiful good thing because it's an organic expression of Christ who is in you. Let Him live through you. That's different. So, we want gospel centered, Jesus centered ministry, not exhortation centered morality. Second point would be we want a Christ centered reading of the Bible. A Christ centered reading of the Bible. I once saw an outline for a conference that a denomination was putting on that I will not name right now, but you know the denomination. And one of the breakout sessions was why the Bible should be the centerpiece of all our messages and preaching. Oh, Bunny, I was about to say I totally disagree with that because the Bible's not the point. Jesus is the point of the Bible. Oh, don't get me wrong, I want every single Christian to have a daily relationship with their Bible. Okay. And, you, and if you say Jesus is Lord and you don't love his word, that's a contradiction. And if you say Jesus is Lord and you don't like what the Bible says, that's a contradiction. So one of the clearest ways to know whether Jesus is Lord has meaning in your life is your relationship with your Bible. Lots of people believe the Bible's inspired and totally true, and they'd be deeply offended if someone burned a page of it. Meanwhile, theirs is covered in dust. Makes no sense. I'm less concerned with what Marilyn Manson does at a concert, and I'm more concerned with what you do daily. You feeling me? That was a side point. Thank you, Bunny. We took that that little rabbit trail together. Rabbit trail. Bunny. I get it. (laughs) I get it. I like that. But Christ-centered Bible reading So there was a breakout session in this denomination that said why the Bible should be the centerpiece of all your stuff And I'm like Can I say it this way? But that's not biblical The Bible doesn't want to hog all the attention to itself The Bible wants you to put your attention on the Son of God Otherwise if the Bible is the centerpiece of everything you do Then what ends up being your gospel? Do better, try harder, follow the Bible better A Christ-centered Bible reading, not a morality-centered Bible reading, is apostolic. It is faithful to the actual content of your New Testament. The apostles had what Bible? What Bible did the apostles preach from you guys? They didn't have the New Testament yet because they're the ones who wrote it, right? I mean, that would be, you know, shame on them for not having it before they wrote it. So the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And what did they preach from every single page? They they preach Jesus the Messiah from every page of their Old Testament. I've, I've heard Christians say that now that Jesus has come, since we're not under the law, we don't even need to read the Old Testament because we're not under that covenant. And I'm like, I just want to do a face palm and say... Do you not understand that the purpose of all these Old Testament scriptures is to prepare your heart for a living, robust, full appreciation and enjoyment of all the life that is yours in Jesus, the Messiah, and that these things were written for your encouragement so that your faith would be strengthened and fed? Oh, yeah, but Tim, we're not under that law. Of course we're not under the law, but the Bible feeds and fuels your faith in Jesus. And if you interpret it correctly, it's about Jesus. The church fathers, as we call them, the first pastors of the first couple hundred years of the church, the ones who actually picked the books that found their way into your Bibles, you ever heard of these guys, the church fathers? Protestants are funny. We're like, all we need is a Bible. And I'm like, yeah, do you know the guys who, wrote, who like actually collected the copies and organized it into a library and codified it and said, not those books, but just these? Do you know who those got? No, we don't know who that is. We don't care. It's just Bible. Dude, maybe you should know how you got a Bible. Maybe you should understand the theology of the people who picked which books belong in the Bible. But the church fathers, they read the Bible this way. They thought that the Bible, every text of the scripture had kind of like a body, a soul, and a spirit. So when they found contradictions and, and difficult stuff that didn't make sense, like modern, modern uh, anti-Christian people, they'll find the contradictions in the Bible, and they'll be like, uh-huh, see, ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> and they act like they're the only ones who've ever read the Bible and were smart. Dude, we've had like thousands of years of geniuses reading this Bible. They know all about the errors, you're not the first person to read the Bible. The fathers knew about all the contradictions and errors, but they understood that the Bible is written by, collected by, copied by, edited by people who are imperfect, but God is somehow moving through it. They didn't trip over it, didn't freak them out. They weren't blind to it. They weren't ignorant of it. They wouldn't have to squeeze it into some modernist argumentative mold. They viewed the, 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 the Scripture has a body, the literal, the historical the immediate, it has a soul, which is its sort of metaphorical and, and applications beyond its original context, and it has a spirit. You have a body, soul, and a spirit. Yeah. And the Bible, the father said, has a body, a soul, and the spirit. And here's like an example of what I mean. I just released, by the way, an 18-minute teaching on scripture on my YouTube channel. And if you have questions about what I just said about the Bible having, you know, contradictions and so forth in it, if you want to talk to me later, I can send you a link or you can just go to my YouTube channel. Uh, I fully endorse the reliability and faithfulness of Scripture. But what I am saying is that God didn't see fit to, to eliminate all the humanness from the book. Okay? Let me give you an example about how the church fathers would have interpreted a book of the Old Testament. Song of Songs. So it has three layers, the body, the soul, and the spirit. The body of Song of Songs is its original context, which is two real historical people who were in love, who were physically and romantically and sexually in love and engaged. And it's like, whew, that's a serious text. And if you're a teenage kid reading it in church to chuckle, you can chuckle. At least that's what I did. Preacher's up there being all serious, and I'm like, (laughs) right there. That's the body, the literal and historical. Then there's the soul of it, which is the broader application. So it's not just a book about these two lovers. It's a book that applies to every monogamous, heterosexual, romantic couple everywhere. That's the soul of the text. But the fathers don't stop there as they interpret their Old Testament. There's also the most important sense in which they read Song of Songs, and that's the sense in which the human author had no awareness of, but the Holy Spirit author absolutely had an awareness of. And it's this. It is the relationship between Christ and the church. So the church fathers interpreted the whole Bible this way. It all has a body, a soul, and a spirit and ultimately, if you're really reading deeply, it will ultimately push you to new covenant realities that are fulfilled and have their telos, their end goal, in the beauty of Jesus. They view the whole Bible as pointing to Jesus. Where did they get this? Well, I think they got it from Jesus himself. If you pay attention to what Jesus said, John fourteen six, his teaching, he's not just saying, hey guys. I've got this morality, the world's never had my rules before. I see how y'all are living, you just need more rules. You just need better rules, that's the problem. People just haven't had good rules. Guys, Buddha had brilliant rules. I can't find anything Buddha said that's incompatible with what Jesus said and he lived before Jesus. But he didn't save the world. You feeling me yet? So what was the great need of the world? More moral teaching? Is our problem that we don't know what to do? Come on guys Doesn't our conscience Doesn't Romans 1 already say That everybody Even who doesn't have The Old Testament law Already has The Gentiles have By like their conscience Within them There's a testimony Of the Holy Spirit That, that morality is available To everyone Even if they don't ever Go to church In fact some people Don't go to church Because they can sense Morality within them And they look at us And they go Pfft. Right? They're not only They're not living up To what they believe is true And they know we aren't either so why would we help them, right? Is that what we need? Our greatest, you know, <laughs> what we need is knowledge. That's what we, everyone just has if we just could get more knowledge. Well, then the internet was invented and we realized knowledge wasn't what we were missing. You can Google everything and we're not better off. A couple hundred years ago that was literally the, the thought, you know, if we just the the problem is ignorance, everyone just needs to be educated. They just need to be informed and taught. Really? Jesus doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say, "Hey, listen, guys, I've got the answer. The answer is a set of rules that I've invented that are even better than the other rules people have up to now." It's not what he says. John 14:6, "I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Well, wait a minute. His message is a person? Happens to be himself? Doesn't that a little megalomaniacal? Not if it's true. Is he kind of an egomaniac? Is God in the Old Testament a bit, an, a bit of an egomaniac when his like, first rule is worship only me, have no other gods before me? No, not if it's loving. Not if every other god is doesn't love as well as he does. Not if every other God can't answer prayer and, and will harm you. Not if every other God is harsh and unmerciful. It's not unloving to say, please be all about me, if every other God that humans are running after is paltry and weak and unloving. So John fourteen 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we hear what? Our generation hears that as like a narrowing. Oh, he's excluding everyone. Is he excluding everyone or is he calling everyone to the only place where there's actually life? Is he, is he shutting everything down and saying, I'm going to make it so that the only way to find life is to believe the right things. You better believe the right things. Ha, 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 ha. Or is he pointing you to where the life really is and telling you all those other ways are false? See, our brains, man, we twist stuff. We twist stuff. We turn turn his truth into something to be offended at. John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, he's not offering a new morality alone. He's offering a new relationship with an indwelling presence himself. This is why it's so great, he says to the disciples, when they're so sad that he's leaving them to ascend to the Father. And he comforts them with this. He's like, Listen, guys, trust me, it's for your good. It's, for your, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I go, the Holy Spirit will come, right? right? The Holy Spirit, by whom I do my ministry, he's with you now, but he will be in you forever then. Our message is a, a person. In John 5 Jesus says this to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, John 5 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. You know how common that is even today? People think that they have eternal life because what they think lines up with what the Bible says enough. That's not what he's saying. If you change the word belief from its Greek meaning, which has to do with personal trust, to a very English meaning, which has to do with intellectual ideas, mental assent, and you put the biblical ideas on a piece of paper and you say, hey, whoever believes in me We we'll live, now you've actually switched what we're believing from trusting in the person of Jesus, the relating to the reality of Jesus, now we've switched it to agreeing with a set of ideas on a paper about Jesus and saying, as long as you agree with a set of ideas on paper, then you have salvation, then you have eternal life. We do that stuff all the time. Because it's easy for us to read these Bible verses and go, oh, those fools. But we are so wonderful. We're here this morning. We must be saved. Right? Jesus says, you think, you think that the scriptures give you eternal life. How many Christians believe the scriptures give them eternal life? Whole denominations believe that their denomination is filled with the Spirit and filled with goodness and filled with truth and filled with the reality of God because their doctrine is superior to other Christian denominations. I, my mind, my mental landscape lines up with truth better than theirs, therefore I'm in. And Jesus says, actually you think that's how it works, but that's not how it works. I'm just going to read it to you because I keep extrapolating instead of reading. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. These are red letters. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive life. Where's the life? And what do the scriptures do? They point us to him. So it's not enough to read your Bible and agree with it, is it? Remember what James says, James 2. The demons believe and shudder. The devil has better theology than you. The devil has better theology than Thomas Aquinas. You don't know Thomas Aquinas? Wrote a book like that on the Apostles' Creed? It was like, you ain't read it, and I ain't never gonna read it. Actually, if you did read it, come up and tell me afterward, and I'll be like, really? What'd you learn? Actually, near the end of Thomas Aquinas' life, he was contemplating his near departure from this world and his arrival in the next, and he had a vision of the Lord. And he, this is the story. This, this could be false, but I believe it. He sat up in bed and he said, everything, I've seen the Lord. Everything I have written is straw. <laughs> Does that not make you want to worship? Thomas Aquinas, like the doctor of the church, the theologian of the church, right? Jesus says, you refuse to come to me and have life. Our message is a, is a man, Our offer is for relationship with a person who is life. You know, we were designed for life, not death. So we try to comfort people, and we say, oh, death is a part of life. It's natural. And I'm like, you know, it is normal, (laughs) (laughs) and it is natural, but that doesn't make it right. It's an enemy, because we were designed, it's the last enemy that will be destroyed Jesus has already defeated it, but you and, my, you and me still got to walk through it, and it's not exactly cool. It ain't cool. But, but we weren't designed for it. 2 Corinthians says that, that our, our mortal bodies one day will be, will, will be swallowed up by immortality. And then the next verse says, And God who created you for this very purpose, dot, dot, dot. And you go, we were created for what purpose? To be swallowed up by life. Guys, that's the gospel. Not what you do for God, but what God has done, is doing, and will do in and through and for you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit and apart from me you can do nothing. I quote this one so much that I'm afraid that people are going to start just letting it be noise. But the Christian life is grace from beginning to end and the Christian life is Christ from beginning to end. Our message is not a morality, but we live a morality. We're called, we, can you, is there a better person than Jesus? Has there ever been a more ethical person than Jesus? So guess what's going to happen if you let him live through you? A total moral transformation. But that's not our message. And when we do exhort people, why? It's so that our wrong thinking and wrong believing and wrong time spending and wrong focus doesn't choke out the message, the reality of Christ in us. That's a different sermon, but we'll go there sometime because Tom and I had a great conversation. Tom Lowell, when we were working on the, did y'all know there's like a 10 foot deep hole in our backyard with two water pumps in it that was buried, totally just looked like a yard. And then Carl, and Tom uncovered it and found it. And one of the pumps wasn't working. So we were back there digging around and messing with it the other day. And afterward, I was just asking Tom questions and I was like, you know, my yard has a lot of weeds in it. What if I just dump a whole bunch of grass seed in my yard and will the seed just go down and start having the grass grow up and kind of choke out the weeds? And he's like, well, you can do that if you want, but you'll just be wasting your money. And I'm like, oh, dang it. I was just hoping. You know, it's kind of like the whole give the devil a foothold in reverse, give Jesus a foothold. You know, and it's like, why doesn't, why can't that work? Why can't just give Jesus a foothold work? Why can't I just let the weeds there, but, but put a lot of Bible verses on my pathetic, unsurrendered life? That would be cool, you know, if that, if that worked, if that would just displace all the yuck instead of me actually having to do what Tom told me to do. Tom said, no, you got to use Roundup and kill your entire yard. I was like, oh, man. He's like, yep. Then you got to once it's dead, fully dead, completely dead, all the way down to the roots, dead, dead. Then you got to till it up. Oh man! Okay, I get it. So first we got to kill everything that's that's a threat, that's not supposed to be there. Then we got to till it up, turn over the soil, make it receptive to the next to the seed. Then what, Tom? Well, then you got to take a sample of that soil, take it to this guy. He'll do it for free because you know Tom. Every, he knows the cheapest way to do like the least, most frugal. That's a better way to put it. The most frugal way to do everything. I love that. Like that's he's a man after my own heart. Like. Why would I waste money? And why wouldn't I get the best product at the lowest price? Why would I want to pay higher prices? It Reminds me of the dude who was uh, selling pottery to the uh, in New Mexico to the the tourists. He had clay pots, and one was five dollars, ten. One was twenty, and they all looked the same. The one guy, he sta- this guy standing there watching him make sell the pots, and he goes. One guy comes up, buys a five dollar pot. Another guy comes up, buys a ten dollar pot. One buy- another guy comes up, buys a twenty dollar pot. He goes. What's the difference? He goes, well, the difference is that some people want to pay five dollars, and so other people prefer to pay ten. But occasionally, people really prefer to to pay twenty dollars. So we we accommodate those needs. So Tom wants the five dollar pot. It's the same. But he tells me you you can take a soil sample to for free. You can get the the soil tested, and they'll tell you if you need more lime or if you need more potash, or what you need to do to get the to, the, to get, you know, to to get the pH correct. And if you don't get the pH correct, you'll, you'll be wasting a lot of your seed. And I was like, Tom, you didn't even... And it's halfway through the conversation, Tom was like, I think I'm preaching. And he says to me, well, you know, some people do that, Tim. They add a little Jesus to their mess, but that's all that happens is they have a little powerless Jesus in the midst of their mess. And the problem was never the seed. All right, that was a different sermon. and We went on that, it's two bunny trails for today. Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he meets two disciples on the road and for some reason, instead of saying, it's me, Jesus, he pretends it isn't. Let that soak in. And he walks with them for a while. He says, uh, Luke 24, 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's interesting. He took them through Moses and the prophets, explaining all the things, or all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus understands there's this beautiful picture where everything is connected back to him. The next then he said, when I was with you before I told you that everything about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, oh, I love this verse. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Before this, they said, when they took communion with him or when they ate the meal with him, which he did the same exact way post-resurrection as he did before, and that's how they recognized him in the eating of the bread. Come on, that's just so deep. Then they say this, did our hearts not burn with us when he walked with us along the road? Come on, guys. That's going to be the prayer hopefully at the end of this little message. A prayer for our hearts to burn as we walk with him and a prayer for him to open our minds to understand the scriptures. But once they what yeah. Isn't that interesting? W- what if God doesn't open your mind to understand the scriptures? Is it enough to just be smart and have good English skills? I did good in English in school. God reveals God. People would be like, the Bible's boring. And I'm like, yeah, the Bible was boring to me too before I got saved. I used to read it to try to go to sleep. The only book that made any sense to me was Ecclesiastes. Yeah, because Ecclesiastes is like, Everything's worthless and pointless and stupid and, no, and nobody should care. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Ecclesiastes. Everyone's dumb and everything's stupid. You should quit. Right? It's like Homer Simpson's stupid advice to Bart. Well, you tried and you failed, so what did we learn? Never try. <laughs> that's Ecclesiastes. and no, I'm just half kidding. I'm half kidding. Because... <laughs> Because really the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is, everyone's going to die, so the things you are running after, if they're not God, they will float away like chaff. That's the real point of the book. So I didn't quite understand that part of it. But once I knew Jesus, once I met Jesus, it became practical. You know, people don't want information that's not relevant to their life. I don't care how true it is. You know why the Bible's boring to people? Because they don't see the point in how it connects to their daily life. Sometimes it's not the Bible's fault. Okay, backing up. What did Paul preach? Galatians 3, he says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Romans 7, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ in order that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. What did Paul preach? Jesus, 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 Jesus. Him we proclaim. Him. I actually have, this is, we're already on point number six, you didn't know that because I didn't share my outline with you, but number, point number six is, what is the Christian view of history? We actually have a view of history, but the fake news will never tell you. Creation, actually that's true, <laughs> nor will the real news. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That is, where, that is where history has come from and that is where history is going, creation fall, redemption, new creation. And guys, three of those? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's not responsible for the fall, but creation was through him, redemption was through him, and new creation is through him. The Old Testament prepares the way and points to Jesus. The New Testament proclaims and applies the results of his work. For example, the book of Hebrews Calls everything in the Old Testament shadows, and the realities are what in Christ. So my favorite conspiracy theory is that everything's going to be all right because Jesus is overcome. That's that's true. Actually, that is my that is my conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh boy. You heard it this morning, Pastor Tim is a conspiracy theorist. He thinks everything's gonna be all right. What do you mean calm down? What do you What do you mean this changes nothing? That's so no matter what happens guys, just think this changes nothing. Which is why that guy can fill his truck with water and go baptize people in the middle of a pandemic and, and all that's happening. Which is why revival can break out all over the world still the same. Because the same gospel preached in the same way from the same unchanging Bible of an unchanging Savior still works the same. You know. Sometimes I see how culture is changing so fast and I just think, I used to be Cool. If you had a time machine you could go back and confirm that's not true (laughs) he used to think he was cool (laughs) but I can't keep up with all the changes guys and I was thinking this I was like dang I don't think I can keep up and then and then I had a good thought and the good thought was do I care how with it old men are or old women are no you know what I care about the fruit of them walking with the Lord because that's always relevant. That's practical and most needed for any generation. Amen. You know? Yeah. All right, let me give you something that I found really helpful years and years ago. We proclaim Jesus, He's our message, right? So Tim Keller puts it so well. When I first encountered this idea of Jesus centered ministry, gospel centered ministry, I was like, I don't, I don't, it took, it took, it took me a while. It took me a while to make the adjustment. And then it took me a while to try, and I'm still working it out. Like I have a friend who's, Brian Connolly, he's so exhortational. He's so exhortational. And I was like, um, sometimes I just feel like I'm getting told, stop sucking, do better. And I I was just like, how do I make sense of this, Lord? And then the other day I was reading in Luke and John the Baptist is just, you know, you know how John the Baptist is. And I could say was, but my guess is he ain't changed. Like probably, he is still the same. He's probably in heaven like ranting. If he had a Twitter feed, it would be like wrong. It would, like his, lots of his texts would start with the word wrong, you know, call caps. And I'm like, ooh, it says this in Luke. He's out there preaching repentance and these people come to him seeking baptism. And he says, hey, hypocrite, what do you think you're doing here? This is fake. You don't want me to baptize you. You don't even mean it. You're just here so you can say I baptized you. You ain't ready to change. You ain't got fruit. And don't even give me that, well, I'm a Jew. Pfft, that don't mean nothing. You're born, a, you, right? It's like saying, oh, you're, you're born, you've you gone you go to church your whole life. Pfft. He's turning people away from baptism, you guys. He's Hey, John, can you baptize me? No, you stink. You're not sincere. You don't mean it. Look at your life. Look at your life. You're not at all surrendered. You want to add a little Jesus? Give me a break. Pathetic. You disgust me. And you're like, this is not how you talk to people, John. Then the soldiers are like, oh, man. If that's how the good guys got told, what are we going to be told? And he says, be content with your wages and don't take advantage of people because you have power and guns. Okay, cool. Actually, they had swords, but you know what I mean. I'm updating the metaphor. Then here come the tax collectors. They're like, oh, man, we're, gonna, we're not going to get off. And he's like, stop, stop taking advantage of people. Charge what's fair. And you're like, man, the church people got beat harder than, than the rest of us. And then it says this. With many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to them. I said, now, that helps me understand Brian Connolly. He, his ministry is Roundup." That's what his ministry, his ministry is, Roundup. It's spraying the yard with all this, to kill all the stuff that will make the seed completely choked out and fruitless. And you go, because well, you're like, how is exhortation compatible with the gospel? You've got to have a heart and a life that's not so crowded with wrong priorities and behaviors and attitudes. It's like living in a lifestyle that you can add as much Jesus, as much seed, and as much water to it this is why like the Welsh Revival, point number one of the Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, he said, is there any behavior in your life that, you, that your conscience says, this is doubtful? I'm like, I'm, I, don't, I feel like, I'm not sure if this is sin. I'm not sure if this is displeasing to the Lord or not. He's like, anything that you know is sin or that you think is probably sin. Step one, get it out of of your life. Round up. Why? Because it'll choke out the word. It'll choke out the word. You'll have a compromised conscience. You're lo- you're, you're, you won't be able to abide in him. You won't drink deeply of him. I just, I'm, I'm, see, I'm still learning is what I'm trying to say to you. I've been asking the question for so many years now, how do we do gospel-centered ministry? And how does this fit with that? And how does this fit with this? And I'm going, oh, Oh, Brian Connolly and Tim Miller would work really great together. He'd be like ah, and then I'd be like, no, good grace, <laughs> yeah, okay. Back to Tim Keller. Brian would be like, hey, I'm not an angry cat. <laughs> I want to read this to you about biblical interpretation. This will be our, our, our pretty much our conclusion. Direct quote: Tim Keller, Jesus is the true and better. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us as a gift. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain by Cain, has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he would to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up to God by his father on the mountain, but in fact was actually sacrificed, truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, now instead we look at God taking his son up to the mountain and sacrificing him, and we say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the kings forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses struck with the rod of God's justice who now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. You can laugh that we call them stupid. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk uh, you know, leaving an earthly palace, but actually lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk life, but gave his life. Remember when she said, and if I perish, I perish? He said, I will perish. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real, the true and better rock of Moses, Moses, the true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true lamb. He's the true light. He's the true bread. The Bible's not about you. It's about him. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts, when we walk with you, they burn within us. And we ask as we walk with you that you would lay your hand on us and that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures, that we would not make it about what we do for you, but that we would make it about who you are for us and we would learn to cooperate with you, receive you and receive love and light and grace, not just for us but for others around us, that we would have our gospel be a person that we would proclaim you, that we would receive you, that we would glorify you. It's personal. I ask God that we would let it be personal. Those of us who've been hurt and betrayed, sometimes we flee from the personal to the abstract to escape the risk of ever being let down again. But the abstract can never love us and can never save us. Only you can. Amen.